Al Jazeera podcast. I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Calls for a ceasefire in Gaza are growing every day. But with Palestinians enduring deaths, devastation, and deprivation every day, what have they been offered? Pauses in Israeli strikes. Daily four-hour windows said to be aimed at encouraging people to move south. But that region's being bombed too. So does the White House announcement of a daily pause offer any respite at all to Palestinians in the territory? Well, for more on this, let's bring in our guests now. And in Chicago, Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, where he investigates human rights abuses and crimes against humanity. In Virginia, in the United States, is Trita Parsi, the executive vice president of Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That's a Washington-based think tank. And in Toronto is Joseph Bellevue, the executive director of Doctors Without Borders in Canada. A very warm welcome to all of you. Trita, let's start with you, because we've got a day after the U.S. announcing these pauses, at least at the time of recording this program, we've yet to see any official confirmation of these pauses from the Israelis or any evidence of them taking place on the ground. Do you think the Biden administration was premature in its announcement? I think the Biden administration is not really looking to ease the situation in Palestine. What they're looking to do is to some sort of a measure that makes it easier for them to manage Israel slaughtering Gaza and reduce the international objection. But I think even that very cynical move has failed because people are simply not accepting that there should be a pause in the killing when there can be a stop to the killing. And in the, in the region itself, no one has called for a pause. All of the different countries, including those that are very close to the United States, have called for a ceasefire. And if we look at the language, Trita, we're, we're seeing them cause it, calling it a humanitarian pause. But there's not much humanitarian about it, is it? A four-hour window, if indeed it happens from being bombed, reprieved from being bombed, or being forced to move from your home in the north to the south, where you're also likely to be bombed. And yet the US seems very happy to use this term. There's nothing humane about pausing a killing when you actually can stop the killing. And I think we also have to keep in mind, it was only about three weeks ago when the Brazilians introduced a resolution in the UN Security Council calling for humanitarian pause. The entire council, with the exception of Russia and the UK, voted in favor of it. The United States vetoed that resolution. It condemned Hamas, it condemned terrorism, it called for humanitarian pause, and apparently that was not something the US was willing to accept. Now it's going for humanitarian pause after thousands and thousands of more people have been killed. And it's done in such a matter in which will have almost zero diplomatic effect in the region and hardly any effect at all on the ground in terms of easing the suffering. And Omar, even if we do see it taking place, what's it likely to look like? Look, at the end of the day, it's not going to stop the relentless, incessant bombing by Israeli forces that has reduced entire city blocks and large parts of neighborhood to rubble. The reality is under international humanitarian law, for a warning to be effective, there must be a safe place to go and a safe way to get there. And in Gaza, there is no safe place to go and no safe way to get anywhere. Ultimately, to get humanitarian aid to those in need, you need fuel to enter and you need a sustained break in the 
uh, uh, a bombing, not a temporary pause, but something significant that can allow aid to reach hospitals in northern Gaza, to reach those in need, because right now it's simply not getting there. The aid that's coming in through Rafah is just a trickle of what's necessary. Israel is refusing to flick the switch for electricity, turn the tap for the water, allow in these critical resources, and a four-hour pause any and every day is not going to address the underlying need to stop the unlawful killings and to allow aid to reach those in need, including in northern Gaza. Joseph, you have, you've actually written an open letter to the Canadian Prime Minister saying what we're saying now, that a pause is not a solution. Do you expect them to listen to that letter? Well, I, first off, just to corroborate uh, indeed what you're saying, that, uh, that that a pause is not going to be a solution. It's not going to stop the, the problem here. And this, this is an unusual step for MSF, for Doctors Without Borders, to mm. take. We don't normally, uh, as humanitarians, our job is to go into conflict situations, provide a measure of, of, of humanity, and provide medical aid within uh, a conflict situation. Uh, and we would call on parties to conflict to respect international humanitarian law to provide that space within which we can, we can act and, and provide that humanitarian assistance. In this instance, We've just seen you know, this, this incessant pattern of repeated and brazen violations of international humanitarian law, not separating combatants from, from non-combatants and taking measures to protect the non-combatants, siege warfare, indiscriminate form of warfare, direct attacks on, on hospitals. I even you know, was just reading that there were more attacks during last night on mm -hmm. medical facilities uh, in Gaza. So it, this repeated pattern of complete ignoring of humanitarian law and, and, and the result being that there is just no space for humanitarian action whatsoever uh, and, and this crushing blows to civilians. That's why we're saying, look, a pause is, uh, you know, any moment when there's not a bomb falling, that's a good thing. But a pause indicates resumption. And in this case, any form of resumption of what's currently happening, the way that the hostilities are currently being conducted, is completely inhumane. It's completely unacceptable. And that's why we're writing to, uh, to our government, uh, to, for, for our government to put all their pressure that they can for a complete ceasefire. But why do you think your government, the US, the UK, many governments in the West are refusing to use this word ceasefire? I don't know why they're refusing to, but I what what I can feel is that there's a, a desire to say, look, if we can just get some humanitarian aid in there, but humanitarian aid is not a solution to this. Mm. Doctors cannot stop bombs. So, you know, there's, there, I think there's an effort to say, look, if we can just sort of open up the border for a little bit, maybe get some pauses, get a little bit of humanitarian aid in there, we can all feel a little bit better about what's happening in Gaza. But that is just, that is almost meaningless. Any bit of aid is going to be a good thing. Any pause is going to be a good thing. But it's almost meaningless relative to the scale of the, of the bombardment. And, and, you know, this is why we have to come back to our government. And hopefully, you know, this letter and, and the activism of so many in, in my country here uh, calling for this ceasefire, hopefully our government will listen and realize that, that a pause is, is way far from a solution. A total ceasefire is what needs to happen. Trisha, John Kirby, the spokesman for the US National Security Council, he says that these pauses are significant first steps. One wonders first steps to what and just how significant they are. Well, the US side has 
given absolutely no indication that the last step or the next steps would be anything uh, uh, involving any particular diplomacy. So it appears that the next steps is for the Israeli military to take their military campaign to the next level. And that means more people are going to be uh, killed, more children are going to die. I think it's important to keep in mind the numbers here in comparison to other conflicts. We have a situation in, um, uh, in Gaza right now in which, according to the Israeli figures themselves, they say that they believe they have killed about 20,000 people, which is far more than what the Gazan health uh, uh, authorities have reported. Um, but nevertheless, that's their Israeli estimation. And they've also said that they believe that they have killed about 60 Hamas operatives. That would mean that 0.3% of the people killed are with Hamas. That means that 99.7% of the people killed are civilians. This disproportionate, I mean, this uh, amount of civilian death, I don't think we have seen in any other military conflict in the last 50, 60 years. And that is why just calling for pauses and not doing anything, not spending any of this political capital on an actual end to the conflict, it's simply unforgivable, and it is really hurting the U.S.'s standing internationally. The U.S. position on this matter is as isolated at the U.N. as the Russian position on Ukraine was. So this is not just about what's happening to the Palestinians or the Israelis. This is also having a very, very detrimental effect on the U.S.'s standing in the world. And it's not just in the Middle East. Look at the protests taking place in Latin America. Take a look at the number of countries in Latin America that have broken their relations with Israel. The U.S. should really rethink this position uh, extensively because it is unforgivable and it is hurting the U.S.'s position uh, globally. Traitor, do you think we perhaps overestimate the U.S.'s leverage over the Netanyahu government and his war cabinet, because we know that the U.S. exerted huge pressure on Israel over the past few days to agree even to these short daily pauses, which we've yet to see them put in place. Do you think they have even less leverage over Israel than we think? I'm not really sure that it is true that the U.S. imposed huge pressure. I mean, take a look at what has happened. On the one hand, the U.S. vetoed the resolution, calling mm. for the very humanitarian pauses now that the U.S. says that it favors. At the same time, you have Congress allocating $14 billion to Israel. The United States is replenishing uh, Israeli uh, artillery uh, and ammunition, even taking some of the weapons that have been sent to Ukraine, shipping it to Israel. So what is the huge pressure we're talking about here? These are mixed messages. On the one hand, some uh, empty rhetoric saying that we're pressuring Israel, on the other hand, in practical terms, doing everything to facilitate and help Israel in its slaughter in Gaza right now. I think the United States has massive leverage. We have not used it because the Biden administration does not want to use it. Omar, let's look at this UN Security Council, these two resolutions that we've mentioned uh, in, in the discussions so far. Of course, one calling for humanitarian ceasefire, that was rejected. But also, as we've highlighted, this humanitarian pause, this resolution calling for humanitarian pause, was rejected very early on. Do you think that set the tone? It gave Israel carte blanche. It meant that it didn't have to adopt this at any stage. How damaging was it that, that very, those two resolutions were rejected very early on in this conflict? We know the United States has long used its voice and its platform, not just at the UN, but much more broadly, to shield the Israeli government. And in many cases, 
Votes like the one we saw at the UN provide a sort of green light for the Israeli government to continue a campaign as hundreds of bodies a day pile up, as we see entire parts of Gaza reduced to rubble. I think it's important to understand here that it's not just about whether or not the U.S. has leverage. I mean, we have good evidence they do. For example, the Washington Post reported uh, you know, a week ago that when the uh, Internet shutdowns were reversed, it was in part because the U.S. pressure led to that outcome. But the reality here is it's not just words. The United States government provides $3.8 billion in military aid every single year. So there's a real risk of complicity of the U.S. government providing arms to the Israeli government, given the real risk they'll be used to commit grave abuses. That could make the United States complicit in war crimes. Mm. So ultimately, we may not know the answer to the question of U.S. leverage because we haven't seen them actually use the leverage they have, which is primarily in the form of this military aid that in in many cases is being used um, to uh, to, to fuel this uh, campaign. Okay, so I ask the same question to you that I asked to Joseph. Why is the U.S. not using its leverage? Why is it refusing to use the word ceasefire? Why does it not want to see Israel held accountable for its actions? I think it's a great question. I think this one, uh, you know, clearly seems to be an issue coming from President uh, Biden from the highest levels of the administration. We are seeing, you know, uh, reports and evidence of a voice of dissent in the government. But ultimately, we have to remember that this is not only harmful for civilians in Israel, Palestine, but we're really seeing a test of international law and international institutions. The repercussions of humanity's failure in Gaza will reverberate far more widely and will undermine protections for civilians. I mean, the law we're talking about emerged out of the ashes of World War II as a way to minimize the harm to civilians. International humanitarian law is not a deal between fighters. It's a deal with humanity. And if we fail to defend that deal in Gaza, it'll undermine protections in Ukraine, in Sudan, across the world. Joseph, as you said before, it's highly unusual for MSF to get involved in the way you have, calling directly to your government to uh, take a stance, to to intervene in a different way other than it has. There are growing calls around the world, from at least the grassroots up, for a ceasefire. How long can these leaders hold out for? How damaging is it going to be for them if they don't listen? Well, I... I what, what we're witnessing, we still have 300 uh, doctors and, and nurses and, and uh, laboratory technicians and so on working in the hospitals. Mm. Um, they're they're exhausted. They're they're terrified. And and you know what they're telling us every single hour is that there are, there are still hundreds and hundreds of wounded patients coming into the the hospitals. Those ones who are still that are still functioning, uh, as we know. Uh, many of the hospitals, including some that MSF were, were supporting, have shut down because they've been hit in airstrikes, because the fuel has run out. You can't run uh, ventilators uh, for, uh, for, for respiratory reasons. You can't run dialysis machines. Uh, you can't treat cancer patients without electricity. Um, and then the, the shortage of supplies. So we've seen closure after, uh, after closure. The, the hospitals that are still functioning are still seeing these waves of injured people coming in. Many of them are children. So, you know, when I hear uh, military representatives talking about how they're using precision weaponry and how they're taking steps uh, to to protect civilians and uh, make this distinction between combatants and non-combatants, 
I can't square that with what my colleagues are telling me hour by hour, how children and women and civilians are, are coming in uh, constantly, constant flow of injured. There's even a, a new acronym. You may have heard this acronym, uh, WCNSF, uh, Wounded Child no surviving family. Mm. So this phenomenon has now become so common that they've created an acronym for children who are arriving into these medical facilities with severe injuries, with burn wounds, and and terrified and screaming for their for their parents and for their families because they've they've lost them. So you know, yeah, you ask about well, uh, when could the ceasefire happen or what will it take? I mean, from from our from our side, we can just tell the world that what we're witnessing is egregious and continuous, uh, brutal attacks on civilians in, in Gaza. So a ceasefire is the only thing humane to, to call for. And Omar, the uh, Human Rights Watch, to, to continue uh, what Joseph was saying about the hospitals being targeted, Al-Shifa Hospital particularly, we know at the moment in Gaza City is being surrounded by tanks, it's being targeted, it's been, uh, Israel has called for its evacuation. Human Rights Watch has said that the patients there, thousands of patients, some 5,000 patients, people sheltering there, some 50,000 people, they're at grave risk. Why do you think these hospitals are being targeted? Look, I think the Israeli government is again showing its callous disregard for civilian life and failing to adhere to the basic principles of international humanitarian law. Hospitals have special protections. It's not enough to make a claim, and by the way, a claim that has not been cooperated by Human Rights Watch, that these hospitals are being used for military purposes. The law is quite clear that you must show a higher threshold, which the Israeli government has not met. In addition, it is ineffective to issue an awar a warning when there's no safe place to go in Gaza. And moreover, you can't treat northern Gaza as a free fire zone. The people who cannot or do not evacuate continue to maintain the protections of international humanitarian law against indiscriminate, disproportionate attacks. Our warning, as we saw tanks on satellite imagery rolling closer and closer to Shifa Hospital, is because we've seen a systematic disregard of international humanitarian law, not just just since October 7th, but in the years and decades prior, it's critical that world leaders act to prevent further mass atrocities. By the time we speak again, we could see further of this. Only concerted action from world leaders could possibly bring us back from the hell we're witnessing. Joseph, just to go back to that point um, that uh, Omar mentioned, these hospitals, they, they have special protections in war zones. Of course, Israel says that Hamas runs its operations from inside and under Al-Shifa hospitals. It says its operations of commands are in tunnels under there. It's provided satellite uh, pictures to prove it, but that's not conclusive evidence. You, or MSF rather, has a burns unit in Al-Shifa where you have your uh, people working there. Has there ever been any evidence of Hamas working in and around that hospital? Look, the, what we know and, and what our, our people are continually relaying back to us is that these hospitals, Al-Shifa in particular, but the others that are still functioning as well, are completely inundated with civilians. So they describe how you know, the wards are no longer wards. You talk about the burning. The only the only room that is still functioning in its original uh, function is the is the operating theater. And the operating theater is completely inundated, inundated which is why, uh, you know, uh, surgeries are happening on on the floors. Uh, in, in one instance, a, a nine-year-old boy 
had to have uh, an amputation just in the corridor in the middle of the hospital uh, without proper uh, sedation, uh, without the proper tools, with his 13-year-old sister watching in horror because she mm-hmm. was also injured and, and waiting for her turn. You know, the, the hallways are completely filled with civilians. Many of them are injured or sick and in need of medical attention. Many others have come to these hospitals uh, to seek some form of, of, of safety and shelter because they know that just being out on the streets or being in their in their homes uh, is, is probably that much more dangerous. And they know that hospitals must be protected sites. So they're coming to these. So, you know, when you ask about the tunnels and, and Hamas, I don't know. What I know mm-hmm. is that there are many thousands of civilians that are in these hospital grounds. And that cannot be, there's no justification whatsoever, whether humanitarian law or just straight up morality uh, that would justify the bombing of these facilities. Omar, we've heard John Kirby of the US also say that Israel does have an obligation to fully comply with international law, but we're repeatedly seeing it not doing that. Look, it's not enough to, you know, reiterate that parties have to abide by international humanitarian law. That's an important warning. But when parties are methodically failing to do so, you must condemn the war crimes that take place. When you cut water and electricity to an entire civilian population for the actions of of individuals, that is textbook collective punishment. It's a war crime. When you deliberately block the entry of life-saving aids, aid that is a war crime. The United States' credibility is on the line here. When you make pronouncements about war crimes in one context, the very same nature of which are being committed in the other, and you fail to call it out, that undermines not only civilian protection, but one's own credibility. In addition to that, it's critical that states call for accountability. We're here Mm. precisely because of years of impunity for unlawful attacks and for Israel's apartheid against Palestinians. So accountability, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in Palestine, must be central to what's going on. And finally, we must address the root causes here. And that includes Israel's apartheid against Palestinians. So long as we fail to call a spade a spade, call reality what it is, and fail to end all forms of complicity in it, we're bound to watch this horrifying nightmare repeat over and over again. And Joseph, one wonders, it's it's been 35 days now that Israel has been bombing uh, the Gaza Strip. Thousands upon thousands of targets have been hit. Millions of people have been on the move. As we know, thousands of people have been killed. How long can Israel continue pounding such a small, densely populated area without the international community stepping in? Well, that's just it. I, I, it it's unimaginable. You know, like every hour that this continues is, is, is carnage. And so it's unimaginable to, to think too far into the future. The actions of, of, of the Canadian government so far have been weak, have been slow. You know, now we hear, OK, it's a good idea to t- start talking about pauses. We already talked about how insufficient uh, pauses are. They are no solution uh, in, in this circumstance. Just this last Monday, uh, we lost a colleague, um, a laboratory technician. Uh, he was in his home uh, in, uh, in in one of the one of the refugee uh, sites uh, with his family. That uh, building was uh, was bombed, uh, and and he was killed along with many of his his family members. Um, another doctor surgeon colleague of mine uh, took the the whiteboard in one of the hospitals. Uh, that, that where we used to write down the, the list of the surgical cases for that week, uh, just wipe that board clean because there are just 
so many hundreds, it's, it, it's just chaotic and, and you, you, we can't do systematic surgeries the way that we used to. Wipe that board clean and instead put simply the words, uh, we did what we could remember us. And, you know, they're working under conditions of extreme threat and extreme danger. And so every moment that we, that our politicians and political leaders talk about pauses and maybe push forward the notion that if we just get a humanitarian aid in there, that could be a solution. It's absolutely not a solution. The bombing has to, has to stop. The siege warfare uh, has to stop. And there we will leave our discussion for today. Thank you to Omar Shakir and Joseph Bellevue for joining us and Trita Parsi, who had to leave us just a little earlier. This episode was produced by Shantanu Chatterjee, Paul Chadurjian, Abla Klar, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Sasha Andrevich. The programme was edited by Mohamed Sobi, Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Keneally and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, Palestinian citizens of Israel are some 20% of the population. As tensions rise, what lies ahead for them? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.